I'm going to ask you to take God's Word in your hands now and turn to the book of Psalm. Psalms uh, 90 is the text that we're going to be in this morning. Uh, next week, we're going to be starting uh, a new series, a series that will uh, take us uh, to the end of uh, April, and uh, that will be a series out of the book of James, Real Life, Real Faith. We'll be going verse by verse through that New Testament book, a book that's very practical, a book that's very uh, hands-on, a book that if you are new to the Scriptures, it's a book that uh, was used in, in many ways to transform my life. I'll tell that testimony uh, next week how that a book, little book of James in the New Testament transformed my life as a teacher and as a preacher uh, of the Word of God, uh, but I believe that it's going to do great things. And if you don't have a small group, I know uh, Steve talked about a couple small groups. If you uh, can't do a, uh, a certain day, we've got groups meeting all throughout the week. I want you to sign up for those. Uh, they are a great opportunity for you to study the passage before I preach it. Uh, and what we've learned from people is that they're learning the scriptures in that uh, routine way more than they ever used to by just hearing a sermon about it. But small groups is more than studying the Bible. It's doing life together. And so I would encourage you to be a part of that. And so if you haven't already, sign up, call the church office, Facebook us, uh, let us know, and we will get you in a group starting this week so you can join us at the beginning of the journey uh, through the book uh, of James. Uh, but today we have a, an open week, an opportunity for uh, us as a campus to uh, really just ask the Lord, what would you have of us? And as I studied and thought about what, what I might share with the church, I, I thought about being a new year and thought about what uh, the Lord may want for, uh, for us as a campus. And Psalm 90 kept coming to mind. And I pushed it away at first and said, nah, I don't know if that's what I want to use the open week of. And then the Lord kept impacting my heart and, and saying, no, I want you to teach on this. I want you to share this. And he started to create a burden in my heart to uh, teach some things from this text. And then, as I'll share later in the, in the message, uh, some things happened in this uh, latter part of the week that really began to concrete why the Lord wanted us to hear uh, from this passage today. So turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Psalm 90. Uh, in your pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you'll find our passage on page 496, page 496. And as you're turning there, uh, we come to a psalm that's written not by David or some unnamed author. It is written by Moses himself. Now, a lot of times we don't think that Moses and the Psalms come together, but this Psalm was one that was written by Moses. And of course, a very uh, massive uh, part of the Old Testament is given to the life and times of Moses. And we have in Psalm 90 a Psalm that was written by Moses during a time of the wandering of the exodus of God's people. And so we have before us this uh, psalm that Moses writes, and he wrote it during a time where the people were wandering the desert for 40 years. Now, much has happened to the Israelites at that point. They have been uh, uh, set free from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. God has shown him his power by showing the ten plagues and delivering the ten plagues to Egypt. We also know that he had parted the Red Sea and that they had been eyewitnesses to the great and grandiose power that God has over even the greatest of elements here in the world. He has shown his presence by leading his people with a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire 
by night. He has fed the people of God, all three million of them. He has sustained them by giving them manna, bread from heaven. And we have seen God at every step of the way, amidst their disobedience, amidst their grumbling, that God had met them at every place that they needed him. His presence, his power was there in a time that they needed him the most. And it's in this moment that Moses seems to articulate that the people of God had a fork in the road. They needed to ask the question, were they going to receive all the good things from God and then go their own way and do their own thing, or would they receive from God all that God had, and in return, out of gratitude for what God had done for them, that they would obey and they would trust and they would walk in the ways that God had called them and guided them to. You see, for us, as we come to a new year, just like the children of Israel, God has been so very good to us. God has provided. None of us have gone hungry. None of us find ourselves amidst a very, very cold Chicago day, finding ourselves uh, full of uh, freezing. None of us find ourselves without uh, the basic necessities of life. God, in 2016, has met our needs in our personal lives and the needs of us as a church. God's presence has been with us. God has been with us, and his promise that he would never leave us nor forsake us has rang true in, in the year past and is ringing true even in the first week of a brand new year. We have seen God move in the lives of his people. God is not some far-off entity that doesn't care about his people, but we have seen his presence alive and real and that we can recognize and know that truly God is Emmanuel, God with us. And so then the begs the question this morning, that if God has been so good to us as he was to the Israelites, a fork in the road is there for us as well. Will we go our own way, do our own thing in the year 2017? Will we spend our money the way we want to? Will we use our time the way we want to? Will we uh, go around and uh, pursue relationships that we think are important? Or will we do all those things according to God's plan and God's will? And in Psalm 90, just as that choice was there for Moses and the people of Israel, just as it was for the Hebrew people who were reading the Psalms before the time of Christ, so we come to a place in 2017 and ask the question, will I go my way or will I go God's way? And this morning, as we look at this passage, I want to do so not from a systematic teaching, if you will, as I normally do, but what I want to do is share my heart with you this morning. Share a little more about kind of what's going on in my heart, what's going on in in my thinking as I enter into a new year, some of the things that have already impacted my life, and hopefully as I share a little bit about what's going on in my life and what's happening in my heart, you'll be able to apply some of those truths and see some of those things happening as your heart stirs as well. Our text this morning is Psalm 90. I want to read one passage of that uh, chapter in the uh, book of Psalms, and that's going to be verse 12. And I want us to meditate our time on verse 12. We'll deal with the rest of the passage, but I want us just to think and meditate uh, on verse 12. It says, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Let that sink in for a moment. Just just stop everything that you're thinking about and, and just meditate on this passage. So teach us, God, to number our days that we may get 
a heart of wisdom. We're asking God to do something this morning. We're asking God to do something that we can't do because if we could do it ourselves, if we could gain wisdom through our own strength, through our own power, then we wouldn't be asking. But we're asking, the psalmist is compelling us to ask the question, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may receive wisdom. Let me just see a show of hands this morning. I want you to be honest. How many of you could use wisdom in year 2017? All right, those that didn't raise your hand, you need to start thinking. We all need wisdom. We all know that there's going to be trials and, and, and situations and choices that we're going to have to make, some big, some small, that we are going to need something greater than ourselves, something wiser than who we are, to help navigate through the choices and decisions and situations of life. And the psalmist here, Moses, reminds us that the person we should be turning to is God. What a great way to start the year 2017. Let me pray for our time. Father God, we come before you, and we thank you that you are such a good and gracious and generous God. Oh, you have met this church at every step of the way. We rejoice in the miracle that you've done in the hearts of people. We thank you for all the gifts that have been given. But Lord, it's easy as we turn the page, as we enter into a new year, to come up with new ideas, new plans, and uh, new purposes for our lives, and to find ourselves dedicating our lives and ourselves to something other than you. So convict us of this truth this morning, that before we do anything, before we plan anything, before we go about uh, our daily lives, that we would stop and, and ask you to teach us, that you would teach us and be our teacher every single day of the year that we might live lives of wisdom. Lord, I thank you for the reminders that you've given me of the importance of this truth even this week. And we pray your blessing on our time in the Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to give you a gift this morning. I'm going to give you a gift, and I want you to take it. It's all been there. Don't look at your phones. Just take your pastor's word for it. But I have just deposited $86,400 into each of your bank accounts. Glory to God. Right? $86,400. That uh, dollar amount went into your bank account at midnight. All right? Now, you can use that money however you want, okay? You are the master of your bank account, and you can do whatever you want with it. If you want to go buy clothes, you want to go buy a new car. And here's the great thing. When midnight strikes again, I'm going to take all the money that's left over, and I'm going to then redeposit another $86,400 into your bank account. And I'm going to do that again and again and again. Now, here's the question. What would you do with that money? What would you do? What's the first thing in, in your uh, mind that, that begins to uh, come up in your heart that says, well, I know what I would do. I would go travel here. I would go buy this. I would go do that. I'd fix this thing up or all manner of things. You see, God has given us 86,400 seconds in each day. And he gives them to you. But the problem is as soon as midnight strikes, as Cinderella learns, the party's over. And at that point, we are given then another 86000 But here's the problem. We leave a lot of money on the table, don't we? We leave a lot of money uh, left in the account because we don't use it. And then some of us, uh, you're, uh, myself included, spend a lot of our money 
on things that aren't going to last beyond a couple days, maybe a couple weeks. And so we've got a money problem when it comes to how we use our time and our energy. And here's the problem. The Bible tells us that God has numbered our days. God has numbered the amount of days that we have, and and we need to be good investors of the money that God deposits. We have been given another opportunity this morning with another $86,400. The question is, how are you going to use it? And what money is going to be left at the end of the day? You see, for far too many of us, we think, well, we've got a lot of deposits coming our way. We've got a lot of money that will continue to be because we're going to live a long life. But Jesus reminds us that while we've been given this day, that no man or woman knows what a day might bring. This may be our last. You may be using the last deposit that God has graced you with. And we need to ask the question today, how am I living my life as if it's the last day? Am I presuming upon God that I've got a whole bunch of tomorrows before me? Or do I recognize and know that I have a limited amount of time here on this earth and that God has called me to serve him and honor him and worship him because that's what I'll be doing in eternity? And if that's the case, if God has called us to enjoy him and worship him and praise his name, then then surely I should ask the question, am I doing that at all moments of life. The psalmist wanted to ask this question. The psalmist wanted to teach his people why this was an important truth. And as we look at Psalm 90, I want you to see three things this morning. If we want to live life as if it's our last, then we must recognize, first of all, that it involves two points of reference. Two points of reference. I want you to put in your mind, if you write on your outline, a point, a long line, with two bullet points on each side of the line. And on the first side of the line, I want you to put uh, the eternality of God. The eternality of God. And what that is, is that God is the eternal one. He is, as, the, as Moses says, he is from everlasting to everlasting. Notice in verses 1 through 4. This prayer from Moses, the man of God, it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. Or as a watch in the night. Let's stop there. Moses says, all right, as I look at God, as I see God, as God reveals himself to me, this is what I know of God. He has been the God of all generations. That means God spans even greater distances than time itself. That whenever time was brought into existence, God has been there at every point and at every generation. God was there before the creation of the earth. God was there uh, before the world was brought into existence. So not just the ball that we reside upon, but the world, the heavens, and, and all of the celestial bodies that our telescopes strain to see, God was there before all of that came into existence. He is an eternal 
God. Now, why is that so important? Because it puts as a reference point something for us. It, it begins to file into our existence who God is. And so here's what you need to understand. When we talk about God being eternal, we talk about God being what I would like to call the uncaused cause. The uncaused cause. Now, I know that sounds philosophical to you, maybe a bit scientific, yet simply what that means is before any other causes took effect, before anything was brought into existence, before there was anything, and we got to stretch our minds to be able to understand what that seems or what that looks like, before there was anything, there was God. He was there. He was there before the beginning. He was there, and He has always been there, and He will always be there. Now, let's put that into what we have tried to say. As human beings, we have tried to say, as we have looked at the cosmos, as we've looked at the ground, as we've looked at our own being, we have come to this realization, to this idea that what happened was, what got this whole thing started was that there was nothing, and then all of a sudden there became two somethings. Those two somethings wanted to kiss one another, and they came together, and that kiss created a big bang. And then what we now know and what we now see is the after effect of those two somethings colliding together to make a whole lot more of something. Here's the problem. I don't have enough faith to believe that. And here's my question. I'm not deeply philosophical. I'm not deeply scientific. But here's a question that I know I've shared with you before. And it's the question, how can two somethings come out of nothing? Now think about that for a moment. Because that's what we're taught. That's what we're told. As human beings, our realization, our understanding of how all this came about was that two somethings came out of nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but that just seems idiotic to me. How can that happen? How can there be nothing one second and then something the next second? Well, I think it takes less faith to believe that there was a creator, that there was a creator God who saw this world into existence, that brought this world into existence, that, that knitted this existence together through his creative power and plan. We believe that God created all that we see and all that's unseen out of nothing. The phrase is ex nihilo. Out of nothing, God created something. And why could he do that? Because he's God. And so we begin to see that God not only is the eternal God, but he is the creator God. He has created, notice in the, in the passage, before the mountains, before the world, before the earth, God was there. He created everything that we touch, see, and feel. The Apostle Paul, probably working off of Psalm 90, said this in the book of Colossians, For by him and through him were created all things for his purpose. So everything that was created, God says, that's for me. Everything that we do, God says, that is for me. Uh, one theologian once put it this way. There's not a square inch of all of creation that Jesus doesn't cry out, this is mine, it belongs to me. Why? Because he created it. And so God is saying, because I'm the eternal one, because I'm the creator of all these things, because it was my plan and purposes that I brought all of this together, and by the way, including human beings, because notice what he says in verse 
3, you return man to dust. Oh, return, O oh children of man. Well, how did God create us? Out of the dust of the ground. And so even you and I, humanity, has been created by God, and God says, you belong to me. I'm going to tell you how to live. I'm going to tell you how to organize your life. I'm going to tell you how to spend your money, how to spend your time, how to be married, how to parent your kids. I'm going to teach you how to be kind to other people. And you are called and you are commanded to do what I say because I've created you. Because I'm the one who put air into your dusty little nostrils so that you may have life. I'm the one who has given you the ability to have life and breath and to live that life with even a fragment of goodness. God has been so good to us as the eternal God, and yet we push him away. To Moses, Moses says God is eternal. He is, as the text says, from everlasting to everlasting. Moses is trying to put in words what is impossible to do so. God is eternal. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, we have the brevity of man. The brevity of man. Moses seems to almost become depressed by this fact. As his mind is stretched, the epic proportions of who God is and of the greatness of God, he has stretched his mind. He said, wow, God is great. He then looks at humanity. He looks at himself and he says, and I am really, really small. This last Friday, our family went to a high school basketball game at our high school. And on the opponent sideline was one of the tallest guys I've ever seen play high school basketball. Almost seven feet tall. He was a giant. I'm a big guy, but, but he, he overshadowed me in a, in a massive way. And Luke, my youngest son, said, Dad, man... He's huge. And I said, Luke, at the end of the game, you should go run up and see really how tall he is because we're across the gym. We can't really get a good understanding of of how tall he is. And Luke had forgotten about it at the end of the game. And he went out and he started dribbling. He brings his own basketball to the game. And he goes out and starts shooting. And and little do you know, as if it was coincidence, he shoots a ball and the ball rolls over to Goliath, I'd like to call him. And Luke walks over, and he runs over, and he's not even looking as who's going to pick up the ball. But the guy bends down. I don't know. It was a miracle that he could bend down and do this. He bends down, picks up the ball. And by the way, you couldn't see the ball once it was in his hands. And he sets it to Luke, and Luke says, thank you. And I wish I could have videotaped what happened next because the guy started standing up, and little Luke goes, And at the end of, uh, of the time that we were leaving, I said, Luke, what? that was crazy, wasn't he? He said this. And, and oh, I was like, man, that's a great illustration. He said, Dad, that guy just keeps going and going and going. He never stops. Let me tell you, that's what Moses is saying. Moses, puny little Moses, is looking up at God. He goes, you keep going, going, and going. I, I, can't, even, I can't even describe what I'm looking at. I can't fathom how big you really are. Some of us, listen, some of us have a real problem as Christians because we have a small view of God. We have a small understanding of God. And I'll tell you how you know that. You will know your view of God by your prayer life. 
Because if you see yourself puny and God extravagantly huge, then you're going to pray a whole lot to him, right? You're going to say, my goodness, this God who created everything, and so I look at all that God's created, why would I not talk to him? Why would I not uh, worship him and adore him? Why would I not uh, focus and center my life on the greatest thing that I've ever seen in my life? Far greater than my words could even describe. We'll know how big our God is by the way we worship. We'll know how big our God is by the way we live our lives. But you see, if we see God as this small little thing that we can fit into our Sunday compartment, then then God doesn't do much. And then we don't go to God. We don't see God as all that big in our lives at all. Surely He's not big enough for us to orbit Him. In fact, what we say is we are big. God is small, so let God orbit around us. Moses says that is foolishness. He says God is eternal. God is from everlasting to everlasting. And he says, but man puny little man. His life is brief. His life is fragile. Notice in verses 9 through 11. For all our days pass under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet in their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we will fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So he says, so teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Notice what he says. Our lives are short. 70, maybe 80 years. All those years are filled with strife and toiling. We're vulnerable, notice earlier in the text, we are vulnerable in verse 5 that we can be swept away as with a flood, that we could be done away as if a dream. There's not much to us. Notice later in the text, verse 5b, like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and renewed, but by evening it fades away and withers. It is here today and gone tomorrow. That is how Moses describes you and I. Powerful, amazing man is here today and gone tomorrow. I learned this truth full well. Yesterday, as I knelt next to the bed of Harold Darch, 89 years of age, struggling as he breathed some of his last breaths here on earth. Harold was a close and dear friend of so many of us, a longtime member of this church. Harold lived to be 89 years of age, and yesterday was his final day. And as I knelt next to his bed and Amanda by my side, with tears, we, we spoke to him. We prayed with him. We encouraged his heart that soon he would see Jesus And as I sat there, I said, 89 years. For Harold, it must have been like that. Because I know my 40 years have been that. I'm watching my oldest son now moving in the next couple months into high school. 
I saw a Facebook post of one of our, uh, our members here at the church lamenting that their son had just finished up their final wrestling season and, and, and graduation is around the corner. Our lives fly by. It is brief. Oh, I know there are times, and I remember these days, especially when you're holding those newborns, that it seems like life will never move faster, right? That you'll never get a whole night worth of sleep. Let me tell you something. As I have learned, as I was told earlier in my life, I'm learning now, it is moving far faster than I would have ever imagined. Life is going by us. And for many of us, we won't be as lucky as Harold. Harold was lucky based on Moses' words. 70 or 80 years, Harold beat him by nine. For many of us, we won't get that far. For my brother, it was 16 years. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And what Moses says is short, short, short is your time here on earth. Now, you would think that when someone would look at that spectrum on your insert sheet, and they would see the eternal power and greatness of God on one side and the puny brevity of man on the other side, surely every skeptic would become a believer, right? God is great, God is powerful, God is eternal, and we are small, we are puny, we are fragile, and we will one day die. And that death will come sooner than we would have ever imagined. When we look at that spectrum, you would think that all of us would bow the knee and say, God, you are great, I will worship, I will adore you, I will live my life according to your will and plan. But we don't. And that begs the question this morning, how can puny man think that he can even compete with eternal God? Because Romans chapter 1 reminds us that when we look at God and we see his invisible attributes and we see his eternal characteristics, that surely... We would see all that God has created that we would then fall down and worship him. But we don't. And I believe the reason why is because we take a grace that God has given us and we take that grace and we promote self instead of promoting God. What's that grace? The grace is the interconnectedness of generations. Notice in the phrase, in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. What, what Moses is saying is you have sustained mankind from generation to generation to generation. Listen, life isn't lived in a 70 or 80 span of time. When Harold died, the world didn't fall off its access. It was just another day. The grief we're experiencing as a church and the loss of an incredible man was experienced by other people the day before and the day before that and the day before that because people are dying all the time. But here's the great luxury. People are being born every day, right? And so as people are grieving in the morgue at the hospital in one room, they're rejoicing at the birth in the newborn suite of the gift of God in new life. This was what I experienced in this great paradox, if you will, or great contrast, maybe is a better word, of kneeling next to Harold's bed, wiping my tears as I walked down the Darge's hallway, and when I came back to the family room, there is Harold's little baby granddaughter cooing and laughing and playing with her mom and dad. And the contrast is pretty amazing. Death in one room and life in another room. 
the end in one room and the beginning in another room. And this is what we do. Because we're connected by generation to generation through relationships and through tradition and story and artifacts, I mean, think about it this way. We are studying in the year 2017 something that Moses wrote. Listen, Moses wrote this centuries before King David would write any of the Psalms. King David would write centuries before the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and walked this earth centuries before us. And yet we are interconnected. We can learn from them. We can seek encouragement from them. We can be taught truths from them because God has graced us that we have the capacity not to live in one generation but to be connected to all generations and to see how they lived and see how they learned and see how they went about life and and all manner of things, how they worshiped. The struggles that were true for them, we learn, are true for us as well. We're connected. And so what we do is we start uh, putting together, and we've seen this from the beginning of time. Humanity knows we're puny. So what humanity does is a bunch of puny little people conspire together. Remember the book of Genesis and the Tower of Babel? By one person, we can't accomplish anything. But if we start tag-teaming together, surely we can make a great name for ourselves. Remember that story, don't we? Surely we'll make a great name for ourselves and we'll build a tower that will reach the heavens. If we work together, then that which was puny becomes a whole lot bigger. And what we've done is over the 10,000 years, if you will, of time that humanity has been on this earth, we have cobbled together all of our accomplishments and all of our accolades and all of our trophies and all of our great writings. Now we have forgotten that God is the one who gives us all those things. I want to remind you that every technological advancement, every accomplishment did not begin in the heart and mind of a human being, but it was a grace that God gave. Listen, this is what we do in Romans 1, what Romans 1 tells us. When we get in our car, we worship and praise the name of Henry Ford, not God. You think Henry Ford came up with the idea of the car, of the assembly line? Do you think that Thomas Edison was the one who came up with the idea for the light bulb? Do you think that uh, the guy that put together the Gutenberg Press, I don't know if it was Gutenberg or not, you'll have to check that. You think he came up with that? You think Mark Zuckerberg came up with Facebook? Let me remind you, God is the God who gives every thought to man, every accomplishment, every advancement that that has been brought forth on this earth, God has begun in the heart and mind of a person. And so what we do is we cobble all these together and say, look how great man is. But here's the thing we can't do. We can't create ourselves. We can't create out of nothing. So we look at the human cell under the microscopes and we say, we can't do that. We can't make that. We look to the far-flung places of the world, and we can put little satellites up that, that because of God's gravity and, and the atmosphere of earth, they'll stay in place and they'll rotate around our, our orbit. But we can't form planets. 
And so 10,000 years, we've been able to, if you will, do some pretty cool things, but nothing, nothing compares to what God does and is doing. There was nothing I could do that could bring life back to Harold yesterday. I wanted to. There's nothing I could do that could heal Harold. Humanity and all its technology has not been able to cheat death. But God can, and he has, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is great. Man is puny. What should our response be? We should worship him. Now, right away you would think, okay, Tim, how you do that is we need to get rid of everything And we need to go out west and find some picturesque landscape and we should sit on a mountain, grow a big, big burly beard for you men and I don't know what ladies do to become one with nature. I'll leave that to you. And we're just going to look at that landscape and we're going to worship God. You can do that. But that's going to be a little difficult to be able to live and be sustained in life in that way. So how do we do that in the everyday We do so by pursuing a passage of Scripture, point number two, that our lives must revolve around. Psalm 90 verse 12 is a passage that our lives should orbit around. Lord, teach us to number our days. Notice that little word there, so. In my translation, the ESV translation, so. It might be therefore or because of. Or as a result of, could be put at the beginning of verse 12. Or because of what I've learned already. Because God is eternal and man is puny and small and he has a brevity of life before him. Because of this incredible spectrum of truth, I am going to turn to the eternal God and I'm going to say, God, teach me. God, tell me what to do. God, lead me and guide me. Moses has an ability to cram in one little sentence an amazing amount of truth. First of all, to request. So, teach me, Lord. Where does that request come from? In light of how puny I am, in light of how great you are, Lord, I'm coming to you because I can't do it on my own. I'm coming to you because I'm finite and you're infinite. I'm coming to you because I don't know all things and you know all things. I come to you because I'm impotent, but God is omnipotent. So I need you to teach me, God. When you say this, Lord, teach me, you're humbling yourself that you lack something and you're turning to the one who has it. I need your help. I need your truth. I need your direction. It's an acknowledgement that I'm turning to the only one capable of helping me in my time of need. Inherent within this word teach is the idea of a curriculum. Teachers, you have a curriculum. And what's the curriculum of the wisdom of God? Because that's the end result. Lord, teach me what? So that I might have wisdom. Well, where does that wisdom come from? Write this passage down. Psalm 119, 104 and 105. From your precepts I get understanding, O Lord. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God has said, I will give you wisdom. It is the wisdom and truth found in Holy Scriptures. He has given us the light to our path. So how do we go about our lives? How do we go about our days? By seeking and following the word of God. Now, inherent within that is something of what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. Therefore, I hate every false way. So here's what we say. 
We say, God, I'm puny, and you're great, and I'm going to believe that, and I'm going to sing that, and I'm going to hallelujah that and amen that. I'm going to go to a church that articulates that. But when I leave church and I go about my life and I go into Monday in the dog-eat-dog world, in the world of temptation, in the world of all manner of distractions, I forget that or at best compartmentalize that to a Sunday thing and I go my own way. God says you will receive no wisdom from that. We'll talk about that next week as we explore the first chapter of James. We should expect nothing, James says. Because we're living an adulterous life. We can't seek wisdom from a teacher. I can't go to one of you who, are, who is a teacher and say, teach me math. I, I want to know how to, how to add and how to subtract, multiply and divide. And then tell that and give lip service to that only to do everything opposite of what they teach. What my words are don't live up to my actions. I'm not seeking understanding. I'm not seeking wisdom. I've given lip service to being taught, but I'm unwilling to do the hard work and the discipline to learn from my teacher so that I may become like them. So we have to be willing to turn away from every false way because there's a lot of ways that we can go. There's a lot of people who can teach us how to number our days. The TV and the radio and the magazine world tells us that we can number our days by filling with all sorts of possessions, all sorts of pleasures, all sorts of pursuits, all sorts of preferences, all sorts of power, and that's how you number your days. 2016 was a year where we lost a lot of celebrities, and I can assure you, on the day of each of those people's death, none of their accolades, none of their accomplishments, none of their riches did them anything on their deathbed. And so you can go that way. That's one of the false ways that the world advertises. Or you can say to the God of the universe, Lord, be my teacher, I will do what you say, and I will follow your way. So what does that mean? Teach me. Learn wisdom from the Lord. Learn wisdom from the Lord. Get your guidance from Him and Him alone. Don't try to do it your way. Don't try to go someone else's way. Go God's way. Second, live in light of eternity. Because we are small, because we are, are weak, because our time on earth is but a flicker, Stop living for this moment in time and start living for eternity. You know, we have a limited amount of time on this earth. I hope you recognize that. And a lot of time for many of us has already passed. I, I, I was able to calculate, uh, this is what I do in my free time, I calculated how long I've lived. And I found out as I put in my birth date and today's date, that I have lived today is my 14,880th day. For some, that's a long time. Just ask Amanda. For others, that may seem pretty short. If I live to be 80, and by looking at me, there's no chance it's going to happen. The way I eat and the way I live, probably not. I got 400 months left. 400 turns of the calendar, and that's if I get 80 years. 
So I got to recognize, I got to number my days. I got to recognize my time here is short. And so I have to ask the question today what am I living for? What am I using my time for? If I only got 400 turns of the calendar, I better make those calendar turns all the more important. So I better, what the final thing is, labor for that which is lasting. When we number our days, we begin to ask the question what will happen when I'm gone? What will be left of all my works and deeds? How about my accomplishments? I was a decent athlete in high school. I won some awards. I was an all-state track athlete. I got a lot of uh, newspaper clippings of things that I'd done. My mom did a good job of cutting those out when we used to have things called newspapers. And you know where those accomplishments are at right now? In the dark corner of our basement. That's what our accomplishments become. They become just mere memories. King Solomon, who had a lot of accomplishments, he was the great king, who had done amazing things. At the end of his life, he said, all that I've done, all that I've created, all that I have seen brought into existence, all of my pleasures, all of my possessions, all of them, he said, were utterly meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I've invested so much time on stuff instead of souls. Can you say that this morning? I've invested in stuff instead of souls that I've invested in possessions instead of people? Have I put too much effort in my comforts than my Christ-likeness? You see, laboring for that which is lasting is saying, Lord, I want to live this life for you. I want to do it your way. C.T. Studd, a missionary from a century ago, put it this way. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Based on that, how are you doing at living life? What things this week have had an eternal perspective? We're so quick to leave everything and say, then there, therefore nothing we do has value. And so I have to only do spiritual things. I can't watch TV. I can't go to my kids' baseball or basketball game. Those things are all finite and, and frail. We don't need to do those things. But I want you to understand and know that what it is is just a reorienting of our circumstances, a reorienting of our perspectives. It may involve allowing us to recognize and know that people are coming into contact with a touch of the eternal. That your coworkers and your friends and your acquaintances and your neighbors, as they interact with you, doing the, the little things of life, the puny things that God has enabled us to do day in and day out, that we would add an eternal perspective. That we would encourage people's hearts as they go. That we would reveal God to them in small ways and sometimes larger ways. That we would not allow a moment of our lives to go away without God using us in some way to draw a truth about the need for Him in the lives of those around us. 
And for some of us, that just needs to be just a little fine-tuning. God's not telling you to throw out your schedule. He's saying, but hey, reorient your schedule so that you have an opportunity to make the most of the time that I've given you. That you have the opportunity to be the best neighbor, to be the best friend, to be the best spouse, to be the best parent that you can be by continually and always pointing people back to Jesus Christ. Can you make that your goal this year? Can you make that this good goal this week? Have you ever thought that you might be the closest someone might get to God? That God has chosen you to change the hearts and lives of those around you? That is a life that labors for what lasts. That is the type of life that will hear, well done, good and faithful servants. That's the life that will receive a reward that will outshine anything on this earth. That is the reward, my friends, our brother Harold is receiving right now, praise God. So what must we do? There's a prayer we must recite. And I want you to think about praying this prayer this week. And it comes from these verses. I'll share them with you. And then I'm just going to pray for us as a body. The prayer involves in verse 12 that I will seek the Lord. He will become my teacher. That's the first part of the prayer. Lord, Lord, I'm going to seek you this year. I'm going to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. I'm going to let all the other things be added unto me based on your determination, but I'm going to pursue you and you alone. That's verse 12. Verse 14, I'm going to be satisfied in you. Uh, In January, can we come to the conclusion that everything we bought didn't change our lives on December 25th? I mean, we may look a little thinner in that shirt. We may feel a little better in that, with that new toy. We may feel uh, more accomplished with something we've received. We may have a little more money in our pockets as a result that we were given a gift. But are we truly satisfied? Did December 25th satisfy us that we have no other need? No, we need God to satisfy us in every way. Verses 7 through 9 and verse 13, the psalmist says, Thank you for showing mercy instead of wrath. Because of our iniquities, we should be having our sins brought forth, and yet God shows grace. He shows us mercy. In verse 15, he tells us, allow me, God, to suffer hardship with joy. 2017 may be a hard year for some of us. I know it is for Carol this morning. And that she might experience joy amidst hardships. And so we're asking the Lord, Lord, you don't guarantee us that everything is going to be great. And so, Lord, I need your joy amidst hardships. We'll learn more about that in the first chapter of James. Lord, shower me with your favor. Verse 17a. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. We need God's favor. And finally, move us to serve, not merely to spectate. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The end of the chapter. This needs to be our prayer as a church and as a people. And when we pray this, God will redirect our lives to move us to stop living, numbering our days as we will, and allow the Lord to humble us and to teach us what it is to live this day as if it is our last. Let's pray. Father God, I do pray that we as a church would seek you, that we would seek you this year. 
Lord, that nothing else would be a distraction to us, that we wouldn't turn from one place or another, but that we would, uh, uh, Lord, seek you in all that we do. Lord, I pray that, that we would be satisfied in you, that we would not think the possessions of this earth are, are the end, but that we would seek to be filled with your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Oh, thank you for Jesus, God. Thank you for Jesus who died the, uh, the death and was poured out upon him the wrath because of our sin. And that now you can show us mercy and you can show us grace. That when we sin, you can show us forgiveness. Oh, Lord, in this year, I pray that you would allow us in times of hardship to consider it pure joy, my brothers, brothers when trials of many kind come our way. That we would not think that we expect anything from God except all that God gives us. And whatever you bring before us, that we would receive with joy. Lord, we ask as a church and as a people, you would shower us with your favor. Lord, you've done so, so many times in years past, and we, we come again to you and we ask, do it again, Lord. Do it again. And Lord, I pray that we would be moved from just merely watching, that we would start being, and we would start doing. Lord, I pray that this year would be a year where people would step out of their comfort zone to start giving to start serving, to start worshiping in a way that they've never done before. Lord, I pray that for my own life. Transform my life, transform my ministry, transform my family so that I might lead in this, so that people may see there's a life change in their pastor and in turn that they might be encouraged to see a life change in their own lives. Lord, we are so thankful for what you've done in our lives. We're thankful for what you've taught us. We're thankful for what you've done for us. And now, Lord, I pray that each and every person here would see how great you've been and how great you are and would bow the knee and would worship and would strive to live for you this day as if it's our last. We love you and give you the glory for it. And we look forward to what you're going to do in and through us. Praise be the name of Jesus Christ who enables us to do these things. And all Christ's people said, amen.